Suncast is brought to you by SunGrow, providing clean power for all. Suncast is also brought to you by Trina Solar. Hey there, Solar Warriors. I'm Nico Johnson, and this is Suncast. Each week, I pull back the veil on the life and business insights of clean tech entrepreneurs building the most noble and impactful companies of our time. I hope what you learn from this conversation is a catalyst for your own growth. So thanks for tuning in and welcome to our tribe. Hey, welcome back, Solar Warrior. I'm thrilled that you've chosen to spend more time here on Suncast, and I'm excited to bring back the Solar Pioneers series for another entry. When I first started my solar company back in 2006, one of the distributors that I relied on was a smaller New England company called Grow Solar. The founder of that company, Jeff Wolf, was one of the smartest sales and marketing minds in the business, and we've been friends for over a decade. He sold the resi piece of that business in 2011 to Solar City and the rest of it to EDF in 2016. For over 18 years, Grow Solar deployed more than 150 megawatts. That's more than 2,000 installations of solar PV systems across the U.S. Today, we're going to learn what Jeff's been doing with his time since that exit. Hint, it is not retirement. Of course, you can check out other great founders' stories and solar startup advice in more than 150 episodes over at mysuncast.com. While you're there, you can learn more about the Suncast tribe or join the mailing list so you won't miss out when the next episode drops. For now, get ready to tune up your skills, Solar Warrior, as we tune in to another powerful conversation here on Suncast. Solar Warrior, today we get a chance to hang out with a true solar pioneer. And if you've heard me say it before, you know it's true. I don't have an end date in mind for Suncast, so I'm willing to wait for the interview when I identify someone that I want on the show. So is with today's guest, respected energy and clean tech leader and serial entrepreneur, Jeff Wolf is a recognized leader in creating the U.S. solar photovoltaic industry, founding solar distribution company Grow Solar way back in 1998. He's a strategic thinker who's guided global companies like Shell and Just Energy, and he recently joined the global e-mobility company Tritium as president of the Americas. Jeff, welcome to Suncast. Great to be here, Nico. Jeff, I want to know, and so does every listener, what was the catalyst for you leaving your first job? And how did you know that it was time for you to move on? You know, I've had a bunch of first jobs, I guess, because I've been, you know, three or four or five different industries. It's all secret and there's no secret. I move on when I, when I get bored or when I think I've done what I can contribute. Mm-hmm. So, you know, my, my first job, a lot of people don't know this, was in roofing and sheet metal. I sold residential, commercial roofing and sheet metal systems. Which let me learn how to sell to a homeowner and make holes in roofs that didn't leak, hmm. which was really important skill set later on. I had a great opportunity, but I left it because it wasn't what I wanted to do in the, in the rest of my life. And then I left, I was a partner in an engineering firm designing uh, a large buildings, even ventilation systems and water systems. And I left that when I no longer wanted to design buildings that weren't highly energy efficient and weren't kind of leading the path. Yeah, I actually wanted to ask you about that because if I look back at your history, it's not clear everyone in LinkedIn how many jobs someone's had, but you moved from Amtech, senior engineer, to being a partner in SVP at a consulting firm. I find it interesting when someone takes a sort of a step, a step change in their career, and that's what it seems to me like you got when you went to Bard, Rao, and Athanas, you know, becoming senior vice president and partner. What did that feel like for you as, the, you know, walking into it? You know, was it immediately you were vice president? Is that something you rose through the ranks? I'm really just curious, sort of the, the foundational sort of leadership skills that you began to develop. Well, you know, Nico, it, it's often uh, true when you look deeper that overnight success took a lot of nights. Right. Um, and a lot of overnights, actually. Um, so I just started in, in that engineering firm as their first ever remote branch manager. And I managed a remote branch, uh, you know, 150 miles from the main office, branch of one person which I grew up into to being a decent branch and didn't become partner until I moved to a different branch and headed the office in Chicago and, and built that office up. And that's when I became partner after uh, having been with the firm for 
about four years already. So it was, it was a long, slow, slow path and, and a lot of, a lot of late nights and a lot of work and a lot of drive to, to get there like anything else. You mentioned you guys were negotiating construction contracts. You were doing large uh, kind of building envelope engineering things. And that's, you know, not what you started out with Grossel or maybe give us some insight into your first foray into or exposure to solar power and how and when you decided that that's where you were going to focus the next phase of your career. Well, I'm going to probably expose, you know, a little bit how old I am. Uh, <laughs> my first foray into solar panel was solar power was during the uh, first Arab oil embargo back in 1973 when I built a solar hot water panel as a kid. Um, it didn't work, but it, it introduced me to the field and showed me a little bit of the, the possibility. And so it was since then, and, and then I went to, uh, to college to, to be a solar engineer, which meant either chemical engineer or mechanical engineer, because photovoltaics only existed in space. And so it was this drive towards energy and energy efficiency and clean energy that I had since a teenager. So you went to college to be a solar engineer in the, in the 70s and 80s? Yeah, that's what drove me in there. And, you know, there was, of course, one solar energy course in four years. There, was, there weren't the degrees that were required. <laughs> so I got a standard uh, mechanical engineering degree to tell all my electrical engineering friends I, I took the hard course and, you know, designed building systems for a long time after that. So you in your youth were spellbound by the idea of, of solar and leveraging solar. But you kind of got stuck in that rut, as many of us do, coming out of college, taking the career path to execute on the expensive degree that you had obtained as a mechanical engineer. Arguably, the late 70s, early 80s wasn't exactly boom years for solar, although early 80s in some sense, especially for hot water, was. Where does the crazy idea for, and certainly in the late 90s, grow solar come from? You decide to leave this partner position, this rather esteemed established position, a lot of security, to go off and start a distribution company in a remote region of the U.S. that by, all, by, by most standards was really just dabbling in solar compared to sort of the, the, the south and, or the west and southwest yeah, and, of the and, U.S. And you know, to your point of the, the booming solar industry when I got out of college, it was, it was a booming solar industry in hot water. And then President Reagan uh, nixed that and took the slope panels off the White House. You know, yeah, I had, I had to get a job to uh, uh, pay the bills. And we did a lot of work in energy efficiency. Uh, I designed uh, I got an international award for energy efficient design of a chemistry building at Dartmouth College. And did other great energy work. But I did a lot of standard lousy building work. And so eventually I, I got tired of designing buildings I didn't want to build that were just consuming energy consuming, wasteful buildings with, with the wrong decisions. My wife, who was also a degreed mechanical engineer and, and worked in the building industry, had also had an interest from her youth of renewable energy. And so we, uh, I, I literally quit my partner position. We moved back to Vermont and, and sat in a spare bedroom of a rental house and said, so now what do we do? Neither one of us have particularly entrepreneurial background, although I guess operating branch offices for an engineering firm is sort of entrepreneurial. Uh, but I never considered myself entrepreneurial. So we founded this company called Global Resource Options, which is the legal name for Grow Solar. And we called it that because we could do anything under that name. We did solar. We did a little bit of wind, a little bit of hydro, a lot of energy efficiency. We did consulting work. We did anything we needed to to make a business work. Through some success in marketing solar, as I, I used to put it as Ford Markets Trucks, that we started having success in solar, more success than some of our peers had had. And you know, we, we, we were a distribution company. We, we were not a distribution company at that point. We were a residential installation company. We started to grow that. And then it was some of Bill McKibben's writing in 2001 that finally hit me over the head and said that you know, climate change was not a problem. Climate change was a big problem. And so being, mm -hmm. being naive, which is my strong suit, I decided that our two-person company should change and fight climate change and, and make a difference there. Uh, and so that's when we decided to take the company from being a, a lifestyle company, you know, two, three, four employees, to work it to be a, a nationwide company. For those who've been in the industry as long as I have, uh, and certainly as you, I mean, I've been in the industry for coming up on 13, 14 years now. I got my start 2006, right about the time that you guys really started getting your stride. 
the one thing that really always stood out to me and to anyone else who ever met uh, who ever met me and saw my computer was that Grow Solar really understood marketing in a way that other companies didn't seem to get quite yet. One thing that's, that like that, that that was emblematic. You guys were by no means the only ones, but at your booth, you gave away these stickers, just gobs of stickers. And they ended up everywhere, didn't they? they I mean, people yeah, loved yeah. these stickers. What were some of the themes on the stickers? Do you remember? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. That, that was the, the best marketing I think I've ever done. Um, they were all Euro-shaped stickers. And uh, one just said PV on it. Yep. Yeah. We had people whose initials were PV take them. We had a guy who loved Puerto Vallarta. But, took mm-hmm. some, but then a lot of people just took them because they loved solar. I had uh, Ron Kennedy put one on his door. Of course, he cut off the gross solar piece on it. But, uh, <laughs> I admit that I did as well. <laughs> I, but I had, a, I had a gross solar one because nobody knew what that meant. Yeah. In 2006, we adopted the gross solar name. Yeah. And, and one of those, the logo pieces was um, very stylized exclamation point. People liked those a lot. That was beautiful. Uh, went pretty strong. Then we had, we had an SHW, which didn't do yeah. as well. <laughs> those were the, the three major stickers, I think. And we put a uh, uh, some some words and, and information on the back that got people. So people would read it once, uh, stick it on something, and remember it. If anyone ever saw them, they were oval. They were black with a white ring. I mean, the fact that I can still tell you what a freaking sticker looked like from 2006. And I guarantee you, I might go look for it before this interview's over. I'll pull out my old, uh, I'm, I'm one of those guys who's kept his very first computer he ever bought, right? I guarantee you that computer has a gross solar sticker on the back of it. I'm positive. I'll go look for it. Yeah, I think, I think we probably gave away uh, uh, a couple hundred thousand of those stickers. Amazing. Best marketing dollar you ever spent. So the thing that stood out to me is that that sticker was an oval. And so when you said marketing solar as Ford markets trucks, the first thing in my mind was that oval Ford emblem. Tell me what you mean by marketing solar as Ford markets trucks. What does that look like? Well, when I got into the industry, you know, solar was very expensive, $16 a watt, cash, cash half down. Your classic solar solar of the day would focus on energy efficiency. And if you weren't willing to do energy efficiency, they weren't willing to sell you solar because it didn't make any sense to put solar on an inefficient house. And I understand that logic and I appreciate that logic. But my job was to sell solar and make money. So we would work with people to be efficient. But if they want, didn't want to put in fluorescent light bulbs, remember this was back in the day of bad curly Q fluorescent light bulbs. If they didn't want to put those in, we would still sell them solar because we knew it would help <laughs> change their consciousness and, yeah. and, it would, and it would make us money. We took a lot of flack in the early days for selling solar to people who didn't deserve it. Uh-huh. Nothing was like, look, I'm going to sell solar on the sex and the sizzle and the bling. When you saw a Ford uh, F-150 the people driving that, the people riding in it were always good looking men and women, right? It was, it was definitely sizzle. And so we started selling solar the same way. Is there anything in particular that you remember that was a particular flash of genius around the messaging, the branding, the way that you positioned solar as the sizzle? I mean, boy, there are just so many, so many things about you know, running your meter backwards. And we had about 10 different touch points that, that we work with people on. And, and they would eventually tell us why they wanted to buy solar. The, you know, go after the utility or independence or resiliency. They didn't use resiliency back then, um, but the, the proper mindset. And, and we would just work with people as to what, they, what value they wanted out of the solar. And I was really recognizing that driving it to sell people what they wanted rather than what we wanted achieved our equal goals. We wanted to sell solar. They wanted to buy it. I love it. Our, our whole goal was just help them figure out why they wanted it. Can you walk me through the thought process with your wife in 2000 and from 2001 to 2006, you know, you're going to grow this company. Bill McKibben has uh, sparked something different in your amygdala. You're, you're thinking, I gotta, I gotta grow a team. This isn't lifestyle business anymore, anymore. Similar to growing, you know, a football team or a baseball team, you have to think critically about how you allocate your resources. And I'm curious, who's the first person on your team? Who's the second person on your team? How did you think about growing that? Yeah, people often ask me what, what my detailed strategy was back in those days. And, and the honest answer is uh, I didn't have one. You know, look, there was no strategy in solar at that point other than trying to make a buck to stay in business. It was both Bill McKibben's writings and it was also 9-11 happening at the same time, as you recall. And that, that you know, pushed to driving me towards energy independence as well as uh, climate and such. The first step was to hire somebody to help with installations. And, and so we hired a person to you know, be on the roof with me. I was on the roof. My wife was doing installations at that point and just expand our team and, 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 and invest in that. 
And then we hired a um, young graduate out of uh, Cornell, alma mater, to help with actually the, the engineering uh, and design of the, of the systems and to be uh, an extension of ourselves for uh, engineering and design. We were very much a, a design-focused company. We, we felt that we had actually a, a good edge in being able to design cost-efficient systems. You know, just it was one of our competitive advantages. Good, good, good systems worked well. They were, you know, to the extent they could be in those days, cost, cost competitive. We got very involved in policy and helped actually create and shape the laws that, that helped to drive the, the industry. First in Vermont, which is, uh, you know, some people might call it a laboratory state. We did some great work and, and you know, passed the first group net metering law in, I think, 2001 there, which has become community solar. Uh, it took wow. several years of evolution through legislation to get that to be a community solar law. It started out allowing farms to have multiple meters on a methane generation system and eventually morphed into multiple meters on a solar system. The policy work was very strategic as well to get the right rules and regulations in place, the right incentives in place, uh, the right political acceptance and drive in place. You told me that you recognized you're a good starter, not a strong finisher, that eventually when organizations, organizations get too large, you sort of look for the exit. Help me understand how that applied for you with Grow. I mean, those who know the the success story, I mean, Grow was one of the first companies in our industry to really have an exit at a good time in the industry. And you have gone on to do some other things that we'll, we'll drill down to. But I'm curious, ex- extrapolate a bit on that idea as an entrepreneur for me. To be clear, it's not that when organizations get too large, it's not the scale that, that I have an issue with. It's when organizations get too set, you might say. So, so around the 2011, 2012 time, 12, 12 time frame, you know, solar had become not, not uh, easy, but it had become much more programmatic, if you will. And so rather than doing as much innovating and, and as much as much policy work, uh, it became more just execution. And so I like to invent and create new. And, and so when it becomes executing the same thing over and over again and driving the last half pennies out, I can do that work. I just don't enjoy it as much. And, and so that's when I, I choose to uh, exit. What do you feel like was the hardest and maybe even the easiest things about transitioning away from that company? at a time when the solar industry, some might say, was just hitting its inflection curve? You know, it was, it was uh, 14 years in the CEO role and then another four years afterwards as, as chairman. You know, it, it's a brutal business. I've got all kinds of scars on my back from the areas. You know, the first step was decompression. I spent a long time mm-hmm. decompressing uh, and learning how to sleep again and learning how to not check my phone every three seconds. But then second stage was kind of looking back and understanding what we had accomplished. Because when you're CEO and even when you're chairman, you're looking at what you haven't accomplished so often. You're not celebrating all the achievements you did. And it probably took me three years to understand the magnitude of what Grossel had accomplished. Wow. Uh, and, and that was a really important process for me, for my own personal growth, understanding what I had accomplished and meaning what I could accomplish again. So the, those were probably the two biggest things. Third was expanding my network beyond what I'd had to have to uh, grow and execute on Grossel into a much broader clean tech network. And for you, I felt like that was a logical progression rather than leaning in again to solar as an investor or board member. Not that you don't do those things now, but your intention was spread wider, address climate change in multiple facets. Is that accurate? Yeah, it's very accurate. You know, I thought that I had, had helped to uh, set the solar industry in a great direction and, and create great momentum for it and a real good uh, uh, policy framework, which obviously still needs a lot of work, right? But but real good uh, basis for moving forward. And I, and I felt like there were other areas of the economy that, that needed that creative uh, startup focus again. So the idea of going broader rather than deeper. I had offers to to go in and operate solar companies, but you know, I just left a great solar company operating it. So why would I go back into operating a great solar company? Well, it's interesting because... Your pathway, for those who are unfamiliar, you went on to be a VP at Just Energy down in Texas, huge energy company. Uh, you've just recently left Shell, and we'll talk about that. You started a company called Regrid. But if, if we look at the fabric of the sort of the entry points that you've crafted for yourself, they are injecting entrepreneurship into large multinational corporations. Can you tell me a bit about how that became apparent that that was where you were going to be gifted? You know, really, I was doing some independent consulting after Gross Solar, which was great fun. And it really allowed me to uh, broaden my both my skill set and my network in clean tech. 
but but an independent consultant can only have so much impact and I wanted to have more impact to really jump back into that. And so I started looking around for where could I have impact beyond uh, solar and, and this opportunity for uh, Just Energy to create and run their, their first strategy department. This is a you know, multi-billion dollar, multinational, um, very large energy retailer. That was a, a great opportunity to, to come down and, and try and start to reshape the electric energy industry way, way beyond renewables. So, you know, it was enough of a challenge that I actually you know, moved to Houston for it. And knowing how big a challenge it was, I immediately brought a house so that I wouldn't just run away, which, which turned out to be a great thing because, it, you know, I had a great strategy. Everybody in the company loved it except for the CEO. Um, <laughs> But knowing it was the right strategy, knowing I had a real on, on on board with that, I kept on driving at it. You know, I, I, I lost that round and, and uh, the CEO is not, no longer there. And the current CEO who was the CFO has you know, adopted a lot of what we put together for strategy. So yeah. I, I kind of had an impact after the fact there. But yeah, that, that's not an apparent pathway. It's just being open for opportunity. The, the, um, the actor William Shatner has created a whole career out of saying yes to opportunities. Yes, and, uh, <laughs> yes. Uh, I don't know that I can compare myself to him in any way, shape, or form, but that idea of saying yes to opportunities that come along that are, are somewhere along the pathway is a really great thought process. Glad that you brought that up. I actually wanted to ask you, because some, as someone younger in the industry, as a consultant who has had both corporate career and now an entrepreneurial consulting career, I often wonder, and I see successful consultants in and out of the corporate life, two or three years, four years consulting. I agree with you. There's not a, a tried and true path, but I'm wondering if there's some truism there in terms of the value that the market sees, the value your eventual customers, both corporate from a consulting perspective, attribute for being willing to walk that line between employee, entrepreneur, consultant. What are your thoughts on that? A lot of companies get very scared by that. They, they want to see somebody who's held a steady job in a company just like them forever for the entire career. And, and a lot of companies get very scared by the um, the person who's not appearing, appearing to be bound by the corporate rules and regimes. So it's, um, I think it, it, it's, it's the companies who are a little more open, who are willing to take somebody in. And I think it does great things for those companies, but it often does great things for those companies that they can't quite ingest, and which is why you see the the two-year time period, the three-year time period, it's coming. Yeah. The entrepreneur not being able to quite uh, feel comfortable forever in the larger company and the larger company not really feeling comfortable with the entrepreneur inside. So it's a, it's a big knowledge transfer and, and uh, thought transfer uh, and, and then usually a part of the ways. Maybe there's a, a there there and maybe there's not, but I'm wondering if you in your uh, deep wisdom and expertise in this topic have been able to identify or start to profile Companies that we as entrepreneur consultants, strategic coaches might be able to help. Is there an income threshold? Is there uh, a marketing budget size? Like, are there heuristics that you look for, particularly to tell you this company is ready for some sort of a, an, in, an embedded entrepreneurial uh, spark? No, I, I'm, not, I'm not that smart or data driven on it. It's really a question of <laughs> what, what is the company saying that they want to do? What is company looking like they want to do and not saying? And, and really importantly, who are the team members who are trying to bring you in? You know, we, we need to transition, you know, in one way or another, every company on the planet in the next 10 to 15 years. Yes. They don't all know that yet. <laughs> Many of them know that at the CEO level, the rank and file don't know that yet or don't, aren't, aren't metric and bonus and uh, rated on it. I think it's the entrepreneurial's job, entrepreneurial's job is to uh, go into some of these companies and try and just push it along, try and move the needle. And sometimes you win and sometimes you don't. But one of my characteristics is I really don't, I don't fear having or not having a job. So that, that creates an awful lot of freedom in your life. Peter Drucker in The Effective Executive says when you're going into a role, whether it's a board member or president of the Parent Teacher Association or new executive in a company try to do one great thing what one great thing can you do that will leave a legacy in fact whether you get credit for it or not you'll know that you've done you've made a lasting impact in that company are, are there any uh milestones that you would point to where you feel like you've been able to accomplish that yeah i had obviously success in the policy world at cm multiple successes you know one one that i uh don't often talk about it is the 
second time we had to pass the investment tax credit and see it. I was in a, in a meeting in Cancun, oddly enough, with the U.S. ambassador in a large room, and I found out that there was a problem, that the thing was stalled, and immediately after that meeting adjourned, uh, Rowan was down there, Rowan Resch, who was president of C at that point in time, and I walked out, I grabbed him by the sleeve, and I said, Rowan, our strategy in the ITC needs to be about three things, jobs, jobs, and jobs. And that was when we kind of transitioned the whole strategy going forward in D.C. to being about jobs, jobs, and jobs. And that has proven to be a very successful strategy. And that was one of those flash moments that kind of came to me pretty hard. And uh, I just drove that forward and then, and then see it picked it up well. You've recently moved along from Shell to a company. I'm going to wager that most people listening might not recognize at first blush. A company called Tritium. They're out of Australia. Global leader in e-mobility. Can you tell me how is Tritium different? I mean, at its core, Tritium... For those who aren't familiar, it is sort of centered around the core technology of rapid car EV car charging. So I'll let you unpack that. How is Tritium different and why did this call you EV charging? Why take that path specifically and, and explain a little bit about Tritium and how they're different in the, in the, in the market? Well, let me back up a little bit and start the story at, at a little what I did at Shell and, and why I left Shell and what happened then. At Shell, I was in a group in the new energy division called Connected Energy. And that was working on customer-sided renewable storage, load flexibility, and efficiency. And I helped restructure their strategy there and, and helped bring the idea that, that uh, microgrids were a viable product as well. And, and did more, but that, that's the short story. So got very exposed to microgrids there, very exposed to DC microgrids, uh, which have some technological advantages and, and have really just become practical in the last few years. It, it turned out that I learned two things at, at Shell, and this, the first one might surprise you. I, I really learned at Shell that I actually am truly at my heart an entrepreneur. I, I don't think I, I knew quite how much of an entrepreneur I was until I was inside Shell. Because the second thing I learned at Shell is that they have no clue what to do with an entrepreneur. And, and they're trying. And there are some great people at Shell. And I, I actually uh, a lot of respect for, for, for Shell. Not, not for everything that they do, <laughs> but, but for the company. And, and they are trying to, to move forward, but they just, they don't know how to treat an entrepreneur, really, how to, how to leverage an entrepreneur. They were all surprised when I said I was not going to stay, but I kind of had to move on from my own sanity. So so went out and started a, um, a, a startup with a couple of uh, guys I knew focusing on microgrids, but then it quickly morphed into uh, storage and EV charging connected in front of the meter to the utility. And developing that, we've got an entire business plan and investor deck and everything else on, in, in the can, as they say, on, on the drive. Partway through that process, I got reached out to by Tritium. And, and my reaction was, oh, these look like really great EV chargers. I want to know this management team, whether or not I do anything with them. And as it turned out, I ended up um, uh, you know, being offered the position and ended up being able to bring in my founding team with me from, from uh, my startup. What attracted me was... First, e-mobility is about to explode. Uh, EVs are the future. Uh, this is very clear if you go to Europe and you go to China. And, and at some point, we simply won't be able to afford to build ICE engine cars here uh, when the whole rest of the world is building EVs. So whether we have the policy or not, we'll end up with EVs. Hopefully, I'll have some policy someday outside of the States as well. So it's an exploding market. Uh, Tritium is a um, DC fast charge manufacturer. That's all we do. And so we really focus on that, that core technology. That is our product. It grew out of um, three Australian uh, Queensland University students who participated in the solar race across Australia competitions. So in 1999, they came in third place. So they didn't win, but they had the best electronics in their, in their car. And they started selling the electronics to other uh, university race teams. And that became a business. Huh. They were selling solar car electronics. Then they started selling, selling some other electronics uh, into the vehicle market, e-vehicle market. And, and those products were very robust, very reliable, and actually became the basis for uh, vehicle chargers. And of course, they're all operating on DC. So the, the whole birth of the company was uh, vehicles and DC. So it was in 2013, 2014, when we actually created the first uh, DC fast chargers, a 50 kilowatt DC unit, and achieved a contract for deploying those in the US. We now have 
hundreds of those units deployed through ChargePoint and other partners. They're pretty much white label, but you can tell they're a tritium unit. There's a tritium logo on them and the brand name VFIL is on them. That dedication to the e-mobility market, the hardcore engineering focus, and then and then kind of the blank slate opportunity almost in the US and in the Americas, uh, Tritium hasn't had a good brand. And one of the things you, we were talking about earlier is, is I've had an ability and a, and a talent for marketing and branding. So getting Tritium to become publicly known, getting the name known and associated with charging, uh, and especially with being top tier of charging, and really becoming a thought leader in the space, which, which we will be doing, we're already starting that now. But that's fun. And then and being at the really the birthplace of the industry, uh, 1% penetration right now in California. So being able to, to, to really lead and guide the birth of the transformation of mobility, that spells nothing but fun for me. You know, if you're a developer in need of an engineering or development partner, let me tell you about my friends over at FTC Solar. Engineering services from FTC Solar take a project from a concept on an empty piece of land to an optimized operating solar power plant. Their proprietary cutting-edge Sundat software is itself remarkable and can support early-stage project development activities right through to preparing detailed bills of materials and plans. Let FTC Solar guide your project from concept into commercial operation. Learn more and check out the snazzy videos at go.ftcsolar.com forward slash suncast. You can also find the FTC banner on the mysuncast.com homepage. You know, if you get these Suncast Tribe emails, and I know some of you do, then you already know that Puerto Rico has committed to wean itself entirely from fossil fuels by 2028. And if you're still sitting there wondering whether or not to buy a ticket over to Puerto Rico for the upcoming Solar Power Conference, here's one more reason to say yes. On Monday, April 29th, I'm hosting an exclusive event with Forbes contributor and my personal social media strategist, Mr. James Ellsmore. We are gathering some of the industry elite at the Vivo Beach Club in San Juan, Puerto Rico. Come spend the day with us and participate in this one-day intensive think tank with other executives and leaders, government officials. There are only eight spots left, and they are going to sell quickly. So learn more, claim your ticket at attendprecharge.com. That's www.attendprecharge.com. Jeff, one of the things that you and I talked about before were some of the limitations and obstacles preventing adoption for electric car charging. And what stood out to me uh, and certainly to you was the similarity for those of us who are in the solar industry that the charging, EV charging industry is encountering today. Can you talk to me a little bit about, about that? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the parallels are, are kind of stunning uh, and they go on several different channels. You know, first is a, a technology parallel in that until recently we had, you know, what I'd call the, the old style off-grid inverters, right? We had, we had very limited ability to charge cars. And 10 years ago, you charged cars by plugging them into the wall at 110. And you got, you know, about a tenth of a mile a minute or something, or, 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 or actually probably even less than that. And, and the battery range was, was very low, you know, 30, 40, 50 miles. So then we, we've gotten uh, increases in, in EV range, uh, but we were still charging at one, 110 or 240 volt. And 240 volt, we put a lot of things in miles per minute. 240 volt is like one third mile per minute. So three miles in 10 minutes. You know, you, you, you stop and get coffee someplace and you get three more miles. It's not worth plugging in. You had to limit your use of an EV to what the battery range was on one charge and then go home at night and charge it again for 12 hours. That's the way we work with EVs. All that's changing now with, with what we call fast charging, DC fast charging, where we're dropping power straight into the battery and at high power rates. And, and back in 2014, high power into the battery was 50 kilowatts. Now that's 50 kilowatts is three miles a minute versus you know, a 0.3 miles a minute for a 240 volt. So it's 10 times faster than 240 volt. A three miles a minute is still 10 minutes to get 30 miles. We drive 30 miles a day. So in 10 minutes, you could get a daily charge if you could find a, a fast charger. That's, that was a great step forward in 2014. I think that helped propel us to where we are today, a lot of it. Although uh, industry still hasn't known this. The, the fast chargers were expensive. There weren't many out there. And still, so we're still in a 240-volt world. We're still putting tens of thousands of 240-volt uh, plug stands out there and tens and hundreds of hundreds of DC chargers. And for those who are familiar, 240 is the level two. It's what we call level yes. two, yeah? Yeah, level two. Yeah, it, it, it's your washing machine hookup in the house 
or it's it's the small plugs out in the street. Yeah, this is going to get you something on the order of uh, twelve to twenty miles of charge per hour. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah. Twelve to twenty is, is good. You talk about charging in level two in terms of hours. You know, a few years ago, four years ago, say uh, three miles a minute, fifty kilowatt was great, and and cars went you know seventy five miles on a charge. So it's still not convenient. Now, now we have cars, and, and you know, Tesla introduced the first supercharging network, allowing you to have longer range and faster refill between ranges. But still, it's it's a 20, 30 minute recharge at least to get back up to speed. Now we have the Ionity network that's being built in Europe that we're part of. It's the uh, six major, five major auto manufacturers out of Germany have pooled together, created Ionity, and um, they're deploying 400 charging stations across Europe on all the highways. And these charging stations deploy 350 kilowatt chargers. So for cars that are capable of taking that kind of charge, that's about 21 miles a minute or 210 miles in 10 minutes. So what? 10 minutes is the time that it takes you to go get coffee or go get gas and get yeah. coffee. And the thing yep. is with an electric vehicle or with a gas vehicle, you stand there and you, you hold the nozzle in, a, in a, a horrible smelling outdoor environment. With an electric vehicle, you drive up, it's clean, you plug it in, you walk away and you can go into a nice environment, get your coffee, have your rest break, and then in the same 10 minutes, come out and your car's got another 210 miles on it, which takes you down the highway. So, yeah. And this didn't. This is just being rolled out in Europe now. It's not yeah. being rolled out in the US yet. We're, we're a couple of years behind Europe. That transforms the marketplace as to what you can do with an EV. And one of our challenges at Tritium is people don't know this. Regulators don't know this. Utilities don't know this. So just getting this knowledge out there is really important. But now we get into some of the problems, other problems that solar has had, where we're interconnecting big loads to the utility. The easiest way to put it is we're now with our equipment controlling the largest, uh, most difficult loads, distributed loads on the grid. So when we start putting out 350 kilowatt chargers that sort of bang on and bang off randomly, we have to admit that that's hard for the utilities. So part of what we need to work for with them is how do we interface better? How do we create a, uh, a win-win so that they can interconnect faster, easier, better. How can we get these deployed at, at lower capital cost? Yeah, I think there is some hype around some of the uh, wireless charging, you know, the superconductor uh, capacitor that's going to charge your car in a minute and a half. I think that's going to be launched somewhere in the 2100s, perhaps. But I think it, it actually doesn't, it won't need to be launched because we spend time gassing our cars now. Uh, we'll spend more pleasant time fueling our cars in the future. But, you know, the, the idea that you're going to need to spend five or 10 minutes a week at a fueling station uh, shouldn't blow anybody's mind because you spend five or 10 minutes at a fueling station now and you spend time getting your oil changed and you spend time having car uh, uh, engine done and all those things go away. So your, your total time spent not simply enjoying your EV compared to not simply enjoying your, your ICE engine car, you've got a far better enjoyment percentage in your EV than you do in your gas car even today. You know, one of the problems today is that there's there's like effectively five EV models for sale in the U.S. Right. And, and if you don't like one of those five or you don't like the car brand, you know, if, if you're uh, an, an, an Audi person or a Porsche person or, or, or a BMW person or, or whatever, you, know, you don't buy a, an electric vehicle just to buy an electric vehicle if you're a mass market consumer. You buy your car brand when a good EV comes out. Well, in about a year to 18 months, we're going to have 60 models on the marketplace. And they're going to cover from you know, best race cars in the world to heavy-duty, heavy-duty trailer-hauling pickups. And, and so the, the percentage of customers who we can hit with an EV that's in their brand, in their style, in their use group, it, is going to explode. That, that great expansion of the uh, available marketplace will expand available buyers. It's a wide conversation and a wide open territory. It does feel like the EV world is very much uh, in the you know, 1998 <laughs> solar adoption phase right now. It's, yeah, uh, I, I, I put it more like, you know, probably in the 2007, 2008 phase, okay. you know, where, where prices are dropping real fast and people are beginning to realize that, oh, solar isn't just fun and nice. It's actually really cost competitive at that point with incentives. Right. And, you know, we were talking about maintenance and getting that word out there, total cost of ownership being lower. Uh, and th this is why the, the big fleets are moving to electric because 
they've all of a sudden found out that they convert. Now they can save money on maintenance, save money on fuel, have their trucks on the road a higher percentage of time so they don't need to buy as many spares. You know, you go to a depot, they've got spares because their diesel engines need repair. They just have spare trucks. So they'll need fewer spares because of the amount of maintenance time available. This is why we're now chasing with the charging market to make our chargers you know, as reliable, as available, as ubiquitous as the vehicles are becoming. One of the challenges is just keeping, having our deployments keep pace with, but not exceed pace of the, the, the EVs. We, we, we manufacture, we don't deploy and own. So working with our, the, the companies who do deploy to help them have the right product, the right time, and the right roadmap to move forward as the vehicles are deployed. Jeff, this is all a fascinating topic. I, I want to get back a little bit up at 10,000 feet and explore more at the entrepreneurial level, uh, some of the fabric of what makes sort of influences how you think and operate. What were some of the key lessons or takeaways for you from important mentors in your life? One of the, one of the disadvantages I had living in Vermont and starting Rosor from Vermont and running from there is there weren't a broad suite of uh, mentors. And, and so I really had to... Uh, uh, make things up, and and then and then additionally, we we were we were making things up as we went along because the industry didn't exist, and and so many business mentors just don't know how to play in that environment, and and they they continually make the conservative, appropriate business decision, not understanding that that that's just results in closure in 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 industry like solar. You look at the history of solar, and and I always say that that every six months a new brick wall was put up in front of the industry. And, and we succeeded by just basically throwing bodies against the wall. And eventually we break through, but the casualties were enormous. That's not a rational business thought. And that was done by companies like us and by, by some of the biggest manufacturers in the world. It's hard to find a mentor who says, yep, Jeff, go run at that brick wall. <laughs> so, so for a long time, we really, I really didn't have mentors, which, which was a, a, a real, a real it, it hurt me a lot. Um, then, then when I did get a particular mentor at Grosor, you know, one of the things I, I learned from him that was a great, great saying, you know, in, in, a, in a tough business, you've got to make some tough decisions. And the, the important thing is to, is to not shy away from those tough decisions, make those tough decisions, and then enact them with as much compassion as you can. Because some, many times these decisions involve people, not, not personnel, but, but people, walking, breathing human beings. The decisions can't be made based upon personality. That may be some business numbers, and but then executing can be done with personality. And I think that in any nascent industry that's changing as fast as solar did, and as fast as EV charging will, uh, you have to have that attitude. Probably, probably the single most uh, important thing a, a mentor told me. One of my favorite quotes is by Robert Frost: Two roads diverge in the wood. I took the one less traveled, and that has made all the difference. So I like to think about in life, not pondering what could have been, but it's just genuinely interesting to ask. And therefore I ask you for you, what is the road not taken? Oh, geez. Uh, yeah, I got out of Cornell university, great degree in mechanical engineering, uh, could have gone into the military industrial complex, so to speak, taking a great job. You know, the, the road not taken is uh, status quo. The road not taken is, um, stability. The road not taken is predictability. The road not taken is, um, long-term uh, view towards, you know, focused on earning potential. So I, 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 I've walked away from more money than I have. <laughs> but, you know, I, I, I've had a, a, a career that, that is, I love that's not done yet. Uh, and the more I have, the more I can do. You know, I, I certainly had sacrifices. You know, I, I don't have a boat. Um, I, got, I got a couple of nice houses. <laughs> But you know, I've, I've got you know colleagues who graduated the same time I did. You know, they went into the into the into the investment banking or into this or that, and, and they they've done quite quite well, shall we say? But I have not a single shred of jealousy. Jeff, what has you most excited right now for growth in clean tech, renewables, of EV charging? What's next? What do you think is just breaking barriers? About a month into the job here at Tritium, I, I realized that not only did we control the biggest, most difficult distributed load on the grid going forward. But we also will control the largest battery in the world. You know, I have a solar system on my home here in Houston, of course, and I've got a 10 kilowatt, 10 kilowatt hour battery in the garage, right? Hooked up to the solar system. I also have a 117 kilowatt hour battery in the garage. 
that's not hooked up to anything but two vehicles that usually don't go anywhere. Being able to connect and control to that battery and bi-directionally charge it, so discharge it and charge it upon demand, opens up whole worlds of opportunities. Imagine that you're at work and, and we talked about who pays for charging, right? Well, you're at work and you plug in. You don't need a charge, but you plug in anyway. Because when somebody goes and plugs into the big high capacity 350 or even 475 kilowatt charger because they need a fast charge, that would create a huge spike on the building demand and on the utility. Well, instead, we'll just draw out of 100 batteries for the five minutes and it will totally negate the load. And we might even network in with the, the building control systems and, and into, into maybe some on site solar as well and be able to pull more of that on-site solar that's being curtailed in California into the batteries during midday, having discharged the batteries a little earlier to, to control building peak. And so it opens up, you literally, we're going to have the biggest battery in the world will have four wheels under it. Yeah. And uh, we're going to be at the point of controlling that. And and, and the possibilities open up on that, that, that gets me really jazzed. We're working on that hard. How does it, what does that look like? How do we work with that? How do we work with utilities on that to, to make interconnection easier because right now we've got to interconnect we've got to deploy 25 times faster than we are wow in california we've got one percent evs on the road which means we have about one percent infrastructure on the road we need to deploy by 2040 100 percent infrastructure that's 99 percent in 21 years it's about 25 times faster than we've been going on yeah. average to do that we've got to make our systems easier to connect to the utilities because they also have to connect solar and storage as well and and they just simply even if they 100% want to, don't have the ability to interconnect that fast. So we've got to make it easier. So when we couple the load and the control and the mobile battery, this is where we're going. This is what really gets me excited. I think I could dig down on that topic for a long time. I am exploring some of the fun things that I see happening in, in EV charging. Uh, I kind of, to be honest, like one of the things that I'm looking forward to is the way I can walk in and put my, uh, my Pixel 3 on a charger and it starts charging without any wires. I want to be able to drive my car into my garage and over a, a, a mat and that starts charging my vehicle like uh, wirelessly. That, that may be, we, we didn't do a hotter hype today. That may be a, a hype. <laughs> it's certainly something that I hope is... Uh, well, you is know, that, that wireless charging, uh, it, it might work at, at home. Of course, remember a couple of things. You won't have a car at home mm -hmm. in five or 10 years. That's right. So why would you have wireless charging at home? <laughs> uh, it, and if you have wireless charging, if you're charging in a fleet, you're losing at least 5% efficiency. And so effectively, you're increasing your fuel cost by 5%. That matters to a fleet. They'll hire somebody or they'll have automated charging that, that automatically plugs something in. So we gain that 5% back. So I, I, I think that is hype and we just won't need it. Well, as we round the corner here towards home base, I believe that readers are leaders and leaders are readers. I'd love to hear from your perspective, what books have you given or recommended the most and why? Well, one of the business books that, that was given to me that I read and that I highly recommend is called The Loyalty Effect. Hmm. And it's a fairly old book as business books go. I think it's from the 90s. Is that by Reich, Reichold? Or by uh, Reichold? Is that right? Yeah. Reichold? His name. He's yeah. the guy who invented Net Promoter Score, basically. Oh, yeah. Yep. And he talks about being loyal to your employees, mm -hmm. your shareholders, and your customers. Employees being number one, customers being number two, shareholders being number three. Mm -hmm. And that if you do it in that order, shareholders will get great returns. If you do it in the reverse order, shareholders will get horrible returns. Mm -hmm. But it just talks about the power and the strength of being loyal. First to your employees second to your customers, and third to your shareholders, with all the different definitions of loyalty and such. So that, that had a real powerful effect in my thinking about, about uh, uh, people, people who work with me and uh, customers who we work for. Following on, what habit or consistent practice has had the greatest impact on your life or work? Uh, drinking coffee. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's a habit, but it's a passion. Yeah. Uh, I, I guess the I, habit is following my passion. I can identify with that. <laughs> and, and, and so, um, so much what I do follows my passion and, and a habit that I've taken on that I haven't always had, unfortunately, but I've, I've grown into it and, and grown to really <laughs> want is a habit of really engaging with, with all people, really engaging with them on, on, on a personal level. And, and I think that that's, that's, you know, part of the loyalty, uh, uh, 
program and part of success. Can you give me one tangible example, a way that you uh, have engaged with someone in a meaningful way, something that stands out to you? So, you know, at, at Tridium, we have manufacturing in Brisbane, in the U.S., and in Amsterdam. So we, I, I now have a manufacturing plant that, that in the U.S. And uh, it's really easy for me to, to be in the L.A. office, walk upstairs, be in my office, deal with the sales team, deal with the accountants, deal with the, the, the folks, and never go down to the manufacturing floor. I, I don't need to. It's not in my direct reporting structure. But I try and go to the manufacturing floor at least once every two days just to say hi to people because they're making the product. What they do is fundamental to our success. And so knowing them, knowing what they care about, knowing who they are, I, I understand the importance of that in a, in a way I haven't before. You're a road warrior as well as a solar warrior. Where could folks find you if they want to reach out on Twitter, LinkedIn? To... Uh, LinkedIn is, is best. Uh, I yeah. have been pretty active on Twitter, but not, not so much recently. So LinkedIn is probably best. Well, we'll certainly link to that in the show notes, your Twitter and LinkedIn handles. The website is www.tritium.com.au. Let's end today, Jeff, with a bold prediction. What one thing do you see happening in the market that perhaps nobody else is tracking? What's in your crystal ball? EV adoption is going to happen a lot faster than any analyst predicts, just as solar adoption happened much faster than analysts predicted. I, I don't know that I'm quite in the camp of uh, Tony Siva from Stanford, but uh, probably more towards that camp than the uh, traditional analyst camp. EVs are going to be as expensive or slightly less expensive than a gas car. Certainly, they already are in total cost of ownership. Once you get people in a, in a car, they love it. They never go back. Yeah. They never go back. So I think we're going to see as soon as models are available, we'll see a flip faster than you can imagine. Jeff Wolf is president of Americas for Tritium, a global leader in e-mobility and electric car charging for 20 plus years. As you learned here, a true solar pioneer. Jeff, thank you for joining us on Suncast, my friend. Nico, it's been a real pleasure. Well, that's a wrap with today's solar warrior and pioneer, Jeff Wolf founder of Grow Solar, now president of Americas for Tritium. Hang tight though, because I got some goodies for you. If you'd like to have a closer look at my notes from today's discussion, or just learn more about Jeff, then click on that listen link at mysuncast.com. That'll take you over to the episodes page where you can get the show notes, social media and website links, and awesome book recommendation, as well as access to 150 other interviews chock full of goodness. While you're there, Please check out the Suncast tribe where you can be a part of my inner circle of solar warriors and trusted advisors. When you click on that member button, you'll learn how to gain access to the uncut interviews and the tribe exclusives that don't make it into the public Suncast feed. And of course, when you subscribe to the newsletter, you'll be notified when the next episode is out or perhaps where I'm going to be next. Of course, one place I'll be next is in Puerto Rico. There are only eight spots left for our pre-charge event coming up on Monday, April 29th in San Juan. If you're headed down as well, consider attending. Go to attendprecharge.com. You know, I'm so happy that you chose to be here again this week. Remember, you are what you listen to. Thanks again for showing up, Solar Warrior. It's half the battle. <laughs>